0: Father God, uh, we just want to say thank you uh, for an opportunity to get together and understand you. Um, God, I'm really thankful for the passion of people to come uh, on a night like this, in roads like this, uh, to come here and and learn more about your word. So God, I ask that you would bless us this evening as we open up your word to help us understand something a little deeper uh, and get to know you a little closer uh, and love you a little bit more. the end of this evening. God, open up these scriptures and give us fresh eyes. Help us see what we haven't seen before as your story is played out before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now dealing with the aftermath of the flood. We are in chapters 10 and 11, probably some of the least studied pieces of scripture that I can think of. I don't often hear sermons or studies based on these sections of scripture, Uh, but they do actually set up a lot of stuff later down the road. you are gonna hear a lot of different names. It's basically, chapter 10 in particular, is the descendants of Noah. So these are the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah, and the nations that repopulated the earth after the flood, there are 70 of those nations, so we are not going to dive deeply into all of them. I'm going to make this as simplified as possible to help you kind of see what the world looked like after the flood and where these nations went and migrated to, uh, and then what role they play in the biblical story. So with that being said, let's, uh, let's start and dive into chapter 10 and see what we learned tonight. So chapter 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. So first of all, you're going to notice in the first verse, the list of names is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But the genealogies are listed in the reverse order with Japheth, Ham, and then Shem. Why is that the case? Because Shem is the line of redemption. So he is most important, notating who are the sons of Noah. But in the genealogy, they use Shem last to break out his genealogy because once we get past Shem, the rest of the Bible is focused on the descendants of Shem. So they sort of get the other genealogies out of the way, so we can focus on the descendants of Shem. Um, Shem is where his descendants being the Shemites or the Semite people, the Semitic peoples. And that's where the Jews are descendant from. That's why they are the Semitic group of people. So Shem being the line of the redemptive work is labeled first, but last in the genealogy list. So the sons of Japheth. Now Japheth has, there's going to be 14 nations that come out of Japheth. So we're going to take a look at that and then sort of break it down and help you understand all of this. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, underline Magog, uh, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, underline Tubal and Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath and Tagarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these were the coastland peoples of the Gentiles, were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So verse five gives us a hint of what is to come of them being separated into nations. This is about talking about after the Tower of Babel and the nations were separated and their tongues were uh, confused, which we'll get into in a little bit. But these are that's the descendants of Japheth and the next section is the sons of Ham. So who are these descendants of Japheth? Well, Gomer was uh, settled in like Western Turkey and then sort of migrated into Western Europe. So descendant-wise or ethnically, this would be sort of the Western European into Turkey peoples. All right, Magog, Meshach and Tubal, which I told you to underline all three of them, they get mentioned again in Ezekiel as the peoples who will in the, in the end times be the peoples who attack Israel. Uh, and this is mostly considered by scholars to be one of the kickoff events of the end, time, end times scenario. Uh, it's called the, the War of Gog and Magog. And so Magog is listed, Meshik is listed, and Tubal. And they're under the rule of a guy named Gog, who is the Prince of Rosh, Magog, Meshik, and Tubal. Uh, where is this? This is the Slavic nations, uh, the Slavic peoples. This is Eastern Europe, mostly Russia. Meshik is actually um, Moscow, so the capital of Russia. So this is talking about the Eastern European and Russian peoples. So when you read Ezekiel 38, some of these things will start to make sense when we get down there, down the road. So take notes now so that will understand, you'll understand it later. So Magog, Meshach, Tubal, and the Prince of Rosh would be Eastern Europe and Russia. Now Medai, or Madal, is uh, that's in Iran. These are the Medes. So in Daniel you'll see that the uh, the Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. Those people settled in Iran. Me- the Medes were part of those, uh, part of that group. Those were the descendants of Madal, and then uh, Javan and Tyrus, Those base- that's basically the Greek regions. Eventually, the Italians and the Romans came out of that uh, group of people. So those are the descendants of Japheth. Just to give you an idea, this is sort of moving from Turkey. Uh, into Western and Eastern Europe, okay? Now Ham, these are the sons of Ham, were Cush, underline Cush, uh, Mitzrayim, Put, underline Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Hrama, and Saptakach. And the sons of Hrama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalhnat, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin. Between Nineveh and Kalah, this is the principal capital city. Mitzrayim, begot Ludim, Anamim, Lihabim, Naphtalim, Pathrishim, and Chalsihim, from whom came the Philistines. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zembarite, the Hamathite, afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go towards Gerar, so far as Gaza, and you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and as far as Lasha, these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and their nations. So all that sounds like really confusing stuff, so let's break it up and understand this a little bit better. So Cush is also mentioned in Ezekiel 38 as the the coalition of nations who will eventually attack Israel. Um, The word for Cush, it's translated into Ethiopia. Um, And there's actually a little bit of a debate on where this is because even though the word translates into Ethiopia, it doesn't seem like this is where the Ethiopians are settled. Um, This actually looks like modern day Sudan. Um, So Sudan is likely going to be part of the coalition of nations who eventually attack Israel. Mitzrayim is Egypt, Put is Libya, Canaan is Canaan, or Palestine, I will put that in quotations, modern-day Israel. Um, It was originally called Canaan. The name Palestine actually was uh, given to that piece of land when it was owned by the British Empire and Palestine actually means Philistine. It was kind of a slap in the Jewish people's faces to call the land Palestine because it was named after the ancient enemies of the Israelites that were forced to leave that land. Um, Just as a little history lesson for you. There are 30 nations in all from the nations of Ham, and you're looking at really the Middle Eastern region, right? Um, North Africa, the Middle East, that area, okay? So that's what that looks like. Now there was a character in there who we've talked about before. His name was Nimrod. So very funny name in English, Nimrod. But his name in Hebrew actually means rebel or rebel. And he becomes sort of the first worldwide governing empire. He's a rebel against God. He coalesces the people. Um, And he's the leader of the Tower of Babel. He also built the city of Nineveh. And so this is what the Jewish historian who lived in the first century, Josephus, wrote about Nimrod. And this will connect us to chapters 10 and 11. It says, it was Nimrod who excited them, meaning the people after the flood, excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand, he persuaded them not to ascribe to God as if it was through his means they were happy. So he was, he was telling the people, because of his great strength and he was a great warrior, ultimately not to believe that their happiness had anything to do with God, but to believe that this was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. So Noah after the flood was given the same command that Adam was given to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, to go and expand and grow. Nimrod opposed God and he worked the people up into a frenzy and he became a tyrant and he took away their freedom and made them dependent upon his tyranny and made them dependent on his government. And he decided to oppose God's rule to go and fill the earth. instead he wanted to gather everybody together and they built a tower. and it, from Josephus's account, it looks like he was trying to build a tower that would go higher than the waters would be able to flood the earth as, a, as his fist to God saying, "You can't get me even if you got my ancestors." So this is Nimrod. Now, interesting thing about Nimrod. Nimrod built the city of Babel, or the Tower of Babel, where Babylon was ultimately located. He also built the city of Nineveh, which ended up being the capital city of Assyria. Now these two cities also happen to be two cities or two empires later on in the biblical story that oppose the Jews and actually expel them from the land of Israel. So the Babylonians, you see from the book of Daniel, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, came in and took, the, took the, the Israelites captive out of the southern kingdom of Judah. And this happens in 605 BC, 597 BC, and 586 BC. There are three sieges on the southern kingdom of Judah from Nebuchadnezzar, where he takes the southern kingdom of Judah and takes the Israelites out of their land, and they are exiled. This is known as the Babylonian exile. But the kingdom of Assyria actually even earlier in 722 BC, attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and the ten tribes in the north and pushed the Jewish people out of the land of Israel in 722 BC. And interestingly enough, Nimrod, who seems to be a character who fits the description of the future Antichrist as sort of a prototype, is also the guy who built the two cities that opposed the Jewish people and pushed them out of their land. So that connection and parallel tells us a lot about the future and what we're looking for in terms of what the Antichrist will look like, maybe even the type of government he would want to set up, be someone who's very strong, powerful, authoritative, um, someone that people look up to and are willing to give their freedom to. And become dependent on. So maybe, just maybe, that's a picture of what the future will look like as well. And you see, again, the interesting piece of this as you look at the descendants of Ham, they become nations that are particularly opposed to the nation of Israel. And as you look at, to connect this to Ezekiel, which we'll get to, but I'm going to give you a bit of an overview right now, the nations that are opposed to Israel in Ezekiel 38 in the end time scenario are like the second tier of nations that surround Israel. So the first tier of nations that surround Israel are like Jordan, um, Iraq. But anyway, the Egypt also borders Israel. But the point is these nations that directly bordered on Israel have already taken their losses in modern history. Um, in the Six-Day War, in the Yom Kippur War, These nations were the nations that went up against Israel in modern history after 1948 and have already lost and have even started making deals with Israel. Jordan, in particular, was the, um, I think that was the country that Bill Clinton signed a peace deal with um, during his presidency. Um, Egypt did that back, I think, in Jimmy Carter's day. And so you've already seen these these first tier of nations make peace with Israel, but then the nations that border those nations, the second tier of nations, seem to still want the destruction of Israel. And it's just interesting how that plays out. We have this picture all the way from Genesis 10 right after the flood being presented in the Babylonian exile in, you know, 586 B.C. by Ezekiel. Um, And we've seen that play out in modern-day history since 1948 and the nations that are opposed to Israel right now. So the Bible has been telling a story for a very long time, and it's still relevant today, even this section. So those are the sons of Ham. I hope that that helped you visualize sort of where these, this sort of ethnic group was in the Middle East. And then it gets to the children that were born to Shem in verse 21. The father of all of the children of Eber... Uh, The brother of Japheth, the elder, the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name was Peleg. In his days, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan, and Joktan begot Elmedad, Skelef, Hatsar, Maveth, Jera, Hadorim, Utsal, Dichla, Maveth, Jera, Hadorim, Utsal, Dichla, Obel, Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, Jobab, and these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Mesha to go toward Sefer. The mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, and according to their languages in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations. And these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. This is the son of Shem. The sons of Shem, ultimately the Semitic peoples, the Jewish people come from Shem. And once we get past the Babel story, the rest of the Bible is focused on the descendants of Shem. So who are the descendants of Shem? Elam was actually Persia, another another descendant who settled in Iran. Asher is translated to Assyria, uh, which be uh, back then part of Turkey, Iran, uh, and Azerbaijan. Arfaxad uh, was Chaldean, which... Back then was was Ur of the Chaldees or the Chaldeans, which would be modern-day Iraq or, in other biblical times, Babylon. So this is the fertile crescent between the Euphrates and Mesopotamia where Arphaxad was born. And Arphaxad had four sons who also settled different areas. Eber, um, or the Eberu people, or the Hebrew people, so the, the Hebrew language and the Hebrew people are descendants of Eber, which eventually will be Abraham. We're on our journey to Abraham. Joktan is basically Saudi Arabia, Lud, Lydia, or a portion of Western Turkey, and Aram was Syria. Uh, interestingly, Aram, being Syria, uh, is where the language of Aramaic spawned from, which is the language Jesus probably spoke. During the, in the Gospels in the New Testament, um, which is actually why the Passion of the Christ was written in Aramaic, because it was to represent the actual first century church language and the, the language that Jesus likely spoke. There was also some Latin and uh, some Greek, and Greek was the main like formal language of the time in the first century, but Aramaic was the, was the language that was spoken likely by the Jews in the first century Uh, around Israel and Samaria. So that's the descendants of Shem. Now we get into a little bit more of a description and more narrative. So it's going to be a little bit more fun than just a bunch of names and places. So the Tower of Babel. This is what Josephus was talking about with the narrative of um, Nimrod. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. So this is Mesopotamia. And they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. So this is an oil-rich area, even back then. It fits the geography. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth, which was exactly what they were told and commanded to do, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Instead, they gather together, and they build a city and a tower for themselves under the guidance of Nimrod, who was a tyrant. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. First of all, I think the Holy Spirit was having a lot of fun with this verse right here because they are talking about how they're going to build a tower up to the heavens to defy God, to build a tower so high that the waters couldn't drown them. And this is how God decides to record this instance. The Lord came down as if it's sort of a little punch to the gut that the Holy Spirit gives and saying, you can't come up to me. I will come down to you. You can't, you can't build up to me. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building in the city. Therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So when they got scattered, this is where you those placement of the nations that we talked about, in from Turkey to Western Europe to the Middle East, into India and parts of Asia and Northern Africa. So those are the placement of the nations after the Tower of Babel. The interesting thing about this is they, they were defying God, but there's this little phrase... Uh, there is now nothing that they propose to do that will be withheld from them. In other in other versions, it says, what can't they accomplish is basically how it's stated in other translations. What, can, what could they not accomplish if they're able to do this? And So it sort of comes off and gives us a weird question in our heads is like, why was God mad at this if it seems like humans were capable of great things in the way that it's worded here? But that's not really what this means he's basically saying God is basically telling us when all of the people got together and they involved themselves in groupthink and they became uh, completely defiant of God that they would withheld no withhold no wickedness from them. They would do what was right in their own eyes, and you'll see this constantly come up through through Scripture. This idea that they can be their own God, that they can defy God rise above him, become their own God, institute their own right and wrong, and think as their culture rather than making God be the authority. So that's what God is talking about. And so to prevent man from going down a really speedy, sinful road, he confused their language and split them up um, to prolong the growth of mankind and to slow down the sin of mankind so that the redemptive story could save as many as possible. Now the interesting thing about this little piece is genetics, right? So the Human Genome Project has pointed out that all of the variations within humanity, so all of the differences that we see within ourselves, whether it's the shade of melanin or, you know, eye, the way that our eyes are shaped, the shade and color of our skin, which is melanin, um, d- differences in our you know, types of hair uh, throughout different ethnic groups and cultures, all of the variation within humanity can exist within two people, one male and one female. And so it all boils down to the human race, that we are all actually capable within our own, hum- within our own genome, within our own DNA, capable of all of the total variation in humanity. So why are people so different when they get scattered? Well, this actually makes a lot of sense genetically, because if a group of people move to the African continent or move to the Middle East or move into Western Europe, then over time, genetically, the same traits keep repeating themselves over and over, and the differences become larger and larger. And so this is the beginning of nations. This is the beginning of different ethnic groups um, and probably stereotypes happens here in Genesis 11. But if you remove the veneer of the genetics, you find out that we're all related. And it all we have the capability within our own genome to have the same variation that exists across the, all of humanity. So there is really one race, the human race, but there's multiple ethnic groups because genetics were f- repeated over and over again throughout a long period of time because people were isolated before the world got smaller with things like air travel. So it's, it says in here that he immediately confused their language and scattered them. So I don't know if God just moved people like Enoch, when Enoch was on earth and then all of a sudden he wasn't on earth anymore, or like Elijah who got carried up into heaven, um, potentially, or people just went with the group of people they could understand because God confused their language and I'm not going to hang out with people I can't understand. So people might have just migrated with the groups that made sense to them uh, and moved in a direction. Now that, it's not really answered here because the focus isn't everybody else. The focus changes at this point in verse 10 to the descendants of Shem because the rest of the focus is Genesis 3.15. Remember, Eve is going to have an offspring who will be the redeemer and that was pointed out in Genesis 3.15 and that's the focus of the biblical story, which is why The rest of the biblical story focuses on Shem's descendants because Jesus is a descendant of Shem, because he's a descendant of Abraham, because he's a descendant of Jacob. So the focus changes, and now this is the focus of the rest of Scripture, the descendants of Shem. Before we get there, though, there was one little important detail. In the descendants of Shem, there was uh, someone called Uz. Do you know why that's important? If you don't, write Job, because Job lived in the land of Uz. So even Job was a descendant of Shem. So when I say the rest of Scripture focuses on the descendants of Shem, even Job, even while he wasn't a descendant of Abraham or Jacob, he was a descendant of Uz and of Shem. So he was a Semitic individual. So this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begat Arphaxad, he lived 500 years and begat sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah after he begot Salah. Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber, which is where the Hebrew people came from, Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru, and he, and he begot Ru. Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Notice that the, the atmosphere and the, the terrain and the world that they lived in after the flood is starting to cause the shortening of people's lives. So uh, Ru lived 32 years and begot Surug, and he begot Surug. Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Surug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Surug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Tara. After he begot Tara, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is Terah's descendants, the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, Abraham's nephew. And Haran died before his father, Terah, lived in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans, then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milka, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milka, and the father of Isca. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out... For out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. So they're planning on leaving the fertile crescent in Mesopotamia where Babylon will be built. And they're moving to Canaan, the land that eventually becomes Israel. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. So Abram doesn't make the trek all the way to Canaan. He stays in Haran. And we pick up, we're going to do the first three verses in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So, the next promise, Abram comes along. God says to Abram, Go to the land I'm going to show you, which is Canaan, which becomes Israel. And he tells him, All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abram. So, the next step in the messianic story has come. We know now not just a daughter, or not just a son of Eve, not just a descendant of Eve, not just a descendant of Shem. But now a descendant of Abram will be the one. So the story has played out. He left, interestingly, also in this story. I've said it before. The two cities that are mentioned the most in the Bible are Jerusalem and Babylon. And Babylon was founded by Nimrod as an opposition to God and it is consistently used that way in scripture as the city, as the place, as the peoples who oppose the Jews and oppose God's plan and oppose God's will. Ur of the Chaldees is the, is Babylon. Abram is called out of Babylon, out of the rebellious place to go to Canaan, to go to the land that will ultimately be promised to God's people. And so the story of redemption is painted already out of the rebellion to God to the place, the promised land, the city of peace, Jerusalem. So the redemptive story is being painted for us here in chapters 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for your story. Thank you for your redemptive work and for us being able to see it through the scriptures. Help us to understand your story as it unfolds before us here in the book of Genesis. God, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.